This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Hey, you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by Ted Olson. Hello, Morgan. I'm editorial director at Christianity Today, and again, guest hosting, where usually Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief, is sitting in this chair. But I'm here instead. So It's great to have you here, especially since you spent so much of the year in another country. That's right. That's right. I, I missed being around here. You know, I will say that one of our colleagues recently got back from Nairobi where you were, and he said, that is not a city you should visit. <laughs> <laughs> it is a city you should visit. It's awesome. And I was There's like, a national park in the middle of the city with animals everywhere. That's it's what amazing. I told him. I said, but what about that? But I don't think, as you and I both know this coworker, that is his jam in the way it might be yours and mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he likes, the more remote, the, the better. And Nairobi is definitely a, a very, uh, it is. It is the it is the city where all the expats go in in Africa. So, all right, who's our guest today? Our guest is Josh Harris, author and former pastor, now a seminary student at Regent College in Vancouver. Josh Harris, author of many books, but the book we're going to talk about today is the book he is probably more than two decades on, still most famous for "I Kissed Dating Goodbye." Morgan, did you read "I Kissed Dating Goodbye" back in the day? Parts of it. Parts of it. There you go. I remember fairly early on in my CT career, we did like a whole cover package, more or less, on this on this book. Josh, were you aware of that? I don't remember that. No. <laughs> eh, wrong answer. Yeah. No. Well, he, well, <laughs> well, in light of the fact that you just read parts of the book, I probably maybe read parts of that article. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we were certainly not the only people talking about the book. So yeah, Josh, you were I think twenty one when the book was uh, released. That was twenty years ago. It kind of rocked the the Christian relationship world, at least uh, among Xers. And I don't know, millennials too, Morgan? You're 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 the Well, our youngest coworker here said that it caused her high school boyfriend to break up with her. Oh man, there you go. So but we'll was, get into all this. We'll get into all that. But go ahead, yes. So yeah, Josh, we're really glad that you're here today to discuss all of this. Two decades ago, Josh wrote a kiss gate and goodbye. And if you were a part of evangelical subculture, you have probably heard of it. And if you haven't heard of it, you're probably still been affected by it in some way or another. So as we noted earlier, Josh was 21 when the book was released and its arguments about dating, sex, and marriage were widely embraced by Christian young people. Even today, the book has a four and a half star rating with more than 900 reviews on Amazon. In a piece for CT, author Rob Maris wrote, quote, Joshua Harris hasn't made my life any easier. In fact, thanks to him, my future wife, wherever she is, may very well have given up on the idea of ever dating. Here's how Maris summarized Harris's argument. Harris encourages young Christians to look beyond our Western culture's dominant paradigm for developing serial intimate relationships, namely the process of dating, and instead commit to quote unquote purposeful singleness. Romantic relationships, he suggests, should exist only as a means to preparing for marriage, what's commonly called 
courting. Harris avoids that quaint-sounding term in I Kiss Dating Goodbye, but the idea is implicit in his promotion of relationships that emphasize long-term commitment and the supervision of the community of believers over and against traditional dating, which he feels emphasize self-centered emotional and physical satisfaction. So thank you, Maris, for that really great summary there. Despite its initial popularity, many of those influenced by the book have later pushed back on its arguments about relationships. For his part, Harris has begun engaging his critics and recently announced that he would be filming a documentary about the book's negative feedback. Today on Quick to Listen, we brought Harris on to discuss I Kiss Dating Goodbye at 20 Years Old and ideas and their unintended consequences. All right, before we get into talking to Josh Harris and peppering him with questions, I really just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. So again, thank you so much if you have subscribed to Christianity Today because of this podcast. And we know that there are at least some of you and I like totally appreciate it, guys. One thing that you can get if you go ahead and subscribe to Christianity Today for this month is access to a recent article we did on EDM, music, and worship. I was very astonished, but I'm just naive about these things sometimes, how many people had explained to an office what EDM stood for. Yes, electronic dance music. Uh, And, you know, when this article was originally pitched uh, by Jeff Neely, our writer, my initial reaction was, no, we're not going to do I mean, I don't know what the article is going to look like. It's going to be about, you know, this music in church and, you know, there's debate over it, blah, blah, blah. But uh, then I actually read what he wanted to talk about. And I thought, oh, actually, this is an interesting article. He's not talking about turning churches into clubs. He's not talking about kind of going over the top. He's talking about uh, really instrumentation. And uh, some really thoughtful people were quoted in the article about uh, how do you bring in some of the instrumentation uh, and some of the uh, genre-specific aspects of electronic dance music into congregational worship without changing kind of the emphasis on congregational singing. What kinds of songs you know can you do with EDM? Uh, and then also just some questions about since EDM that D is dance. Uh, you know what is the role of dance in church? What is the role of kind of bodily movement in general. And there's some good thinking in there. Um, it's interesting to hear churches that are introducing, but not uh, not kind of dumping this on their, on their congregation and not doing it because they're trying to reach these kids today, uh, necessarily, but because uh, they think EDM allows for something that, you know, kind of 90s genre pop music does not allow. So you can read this article if you go to orderct.com slash quick to listen. And one cool thing that I want to say is not only do you get this article, but then if you click on the article, Jeff and I and a couple other folks in the building put together playlists that have some of this music on there that you can listen to on Spotify or on Apple Music, which to me, like I've been listening to this playlist a lot at work. It's awesome. So again, orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. You also get a download that has mine and our other podcast hosts, Mark and Richard's favorite articles from CT over the years. Again, thank you everyone just who subscribes. I know you want to get to Josh, so let's do it. Yes. <laughs> so, Josh, let's let's go back all the way to what was your original intention when you wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Well, I wrote the book out of my own experience as a Christian teen who was hearing the message uh, that was emphasized so strongly back in the late 90s that we were to save ourselves for marriage, true love waits. I was also grappling with the fact that my dating relationships had pulled me away from those convictions and led to compromise. I was feeling guilty for ways that I had used girls. And so I really was wanting to make this statement that we had to do something different if we wanted a different outcome from the rest of the world. And so that was a 
a process of me studying the Bible and listening to authors like Elizabeth Elliot, who wrote the book Passion and Purity, and basically asking, what is genuine love? What is it? What is purity really about? And what does it mean to use my single years? And I wanted to challenge other young people to take a, a radical approach to romance in, in serving God. There, there's a lot of similarities between uh, this book and Passion and Purity, just similarities in terms of like personal narrative and kind of advice, but also like, why would you not want to do this radically? If you're going to do this, do it do it in a radical way. Were you kind of consciously attempting to do kind of a Passion and Purity for uh, a new generation? Elizabeth Elliot's book did have a very big influence on me in that my parents had pushed her book on me when I was about 16 years old, and I really was not interested in it at all (laughs) because um, I felt like they were only giving it to me because they didn't want me to kiss my girlfriend. And so I was very suspicious of it and really didn't didn't read it carefully (laughs) at all. And so when I... um, when I broke up with my girlfriend and I was wanting to, in you know, kind of the words of the time, I wanted to get serious about God, I picked it up again and it had, it had a very significant influence on me. And actually when I started to write the book, anyone who's, who's ever endeavored to write a book, you hit a wall where you just think this is the, um, this is terrible. Why am I even doing this? And I remember writing a letter to Elizabeth Elliot and sending her some of the, uh, the chapters to just look at. And I, I was writing and basically saying, I don't even know why I'm writing this because your book is so much better. And really I should just, you know, sell your book from door to door, that kind of a thing. And, um, she wrote me back a little postcard, which ended up be, being an endorsement on the, the book, and basically just said, this is fantastic, this is needed, and that was a huge encouragement for me to keep going because she was, in many ways, an idol, someone I looked up to so much. So I hadn't thought of that, Ted, but you're exactly right. I mean, I, in many ways, I was trying to translate a lot of her ideas into the the dating scene of the, the late 90s. You know, you mentioned that you were influenced by a lot of Christian material that discussed faith and relationships and sexuality. I know someone who also grew up in a similar subculture can also attest that there was a lot of content that focused on those issues. What do you think it was about your book that, you know, kept it above the fray or where it especially resonated? It's interesting. I mean, the reason I'm and even on here talking to you guys about this, I've wanted to move on from this book for a long time, but I'm trying to talk to people who are sharing stories with me about ways the book really hurt them and damaged them. And it's partly for my own sense of closure to come back and to reevaluate it and even to admit ways that I have now changed in my thinking and, and ways that I see these things differently in, in an effort to, to kind of close this chapter and hopefully be helpful to, to people who have both liked the book and people who have disliked the book. So that's kind of why I'm at this place. And Part of that process for me has been to go back and to try to get a sort of a theological, sociological, historical perspective of what was happening in that moment, what had shaped my thinking, what was shaping the thinking of other people. And so the the bigger picture answer to that question of why did I Kiss Dating Goodbye catch on in the way it did, um, I think the world was, was different <laughs> than it is now in different ways. I think people were still afraid of AIDS at the time. I think a generation of my parents who had grown up in the 60s and the sexual revolution and who had come to faith uh, wanted 
their kids to experience something different. They they experience a lot of regret over their own, you know, expressions of romance and sexuality. They suddenly had teenagers, you know, they're freaking out about their kids having sex. They're wanting, you know, a different outcome. Southern Baptist Convention is doing the True Love Waits campaign. Uh, there's a big emphasis on trying to talk about purity and sexuality and all these things. And I was not just in the evangelical subculture. I was in, I mean, I was in a sub-subculture. I was in the homeschool community within the evangelical community. So I was in a double bubble. (laughs) And there was a, a lot of discussion in that subculture about doing dating differently because, you know, you have all these, these people who already think differently. They're like, we don't even send our kids to school so why would we have them date in the same way as everybody else? So they were talking about courtship. They were talking about betrothal. That was a huge conversation that was happening. And I had, as a homeschool teen, rejected most of that. But as I shifted in my thinking and began to question the decisions I'd made in my dating relationships, I drew from that subculture and from many of the ideas about you know, the dangers of emotional intimacy without commitment and the problems that come with that and let's, you know, let's live radically and so on. And so um, I think part of what happened is that what was brewing in that subculture of the homeschool community, I sort of, in my book, translated to a popular level and that tipped into the evangelical community. And I think it just hit at the right time. And there was, there were a number of uh, students and singles who were frustrated with the way things work, were frustrated with the sense of pressure that they had to be in a relationship, number one, um, frustrated by heartache and problems they'd experienced. And the book put into words what many of them were thinking. So I think it was both. I think it was being passed along by young people. And then I think there was also a lot of you know adoption by parents and youth pastors and pastors who read it and said, here's a, a young person that's saying the thing that we think. And so they begin to pass it on to and all of that combined to making the book something that that spread. Um, you just talked about not really necessarily identifying with some of the stances that you argued for in the book. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of tell us where you are at right now, um, especially in regards to some of the core arguments of this book. First of all, I mean, there are a number of things that I still agree with in the book. I mean, I still agree with the idea of of putting God first in every part of your life, that romance and, and dating shouldn't be this kind of special category. It's like, you know, you give God he's Lord of all these areas, but then, you know, go and kind of do, you know, dating off here on the side and in, in whatever way you want. I think that's something that I still really believe in. Uh, I'm really proud of the way in which the book calls people to enjoy their, their singleness and to not view that as some sort of curse or some sort of like waiting period until their real life starts when they're married. And the call to genuine love. You know, I, I think that Part of the reason the book caught on was because it was pointing out real problems in the way a lot of people were approaching you know, dating. And I think that that's always going to be true in relationships. There's always going to be this temptation to just use other people, to use them emotionally, to use them sexually. And I don't think that that reflects the, the heart of the gospel of self-giving love. And so I think that's something that I, I appreciate about I kiss dating goodbye. Some of the things that I'm I'm looking back on though, and I'm I'm viewing as problematic is I, I think that there are ways in which the starting point was the idea that dating was a bad idea. <laughs> um, and I think whenever you start with that, you know, kind of this this idea or or premise, you know, proposition that you want to prove, you end up misusing 
the Bible. And when I went back and read it, I just, I saw that, that argument, even in the title, you know, the title, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and, and the way the book launches into, here are the problems, and the problem is dating, I don't think is the best way to do things. I, th- I think that what Christians are called to do is to, is to go to God's Word and say, what does God's Word say about who He is? What does it say about who we are, you know, as human beings created in his image? What is the purpose of relationships? And one of the regrets that I have when I look back is that I didn't listen more closely and consider the criticisms that began to emerge in the years after the book was written. It's just was easy for me to have the mindset of, well, here are all these people who love my book and who are saying positive things. And then everyone else who's saying negative things, those are, you know, those are just haters. And I don't have to engage with that. And um, I think there was also some fear and on my part where, you know, I was a part of a community and a network of, of relationships where people had bought into these ideas. And I look back now and I realize, yeah, when I begin to ask certain questions, that is disruptive to uh, people who agreed with my <laughs> with my writing in different ways. And so I think that's part of the reason it's hard for people to grow and evolve in their their thinking on different topics. It's often not based on personal conviction as much as it is the pressures of the um, relationships that they have and the people around them. I think in the last two years in, in particular, a couple things happened. I saw some of the damage caused by church culture issues in my own church and began to to care for people in my congregation and realized that my book contributed to some of that. I stepped away from being a pastor and became a student, and I came alongside people not as a leader who had to have answers, but just as a a peer, and I began to listen to their stories in a new way. And I just, I think, encountered, um, you know, some failure and pain in my own life, which uh, gave me more of a willingness to engage with people who are experiencing pain. And and I think all that contributed to, to listening to to my critics. Was there a critique that resonated with you 20 years ago that that's that's different now? There was a book written called Boundaries in Dating that was pointed in its criticism and I now think that many of the things it pointed out were accurate. And for a long time I would say, well, people have misused the book and or people have forced the book on other people. You know, if, if somebody makes somebody do this and says, this is the way you have to date, well, then that's negative. But people who just of their own free will read this book and, you know, take and pick and choose what they want, those people can be helped by it. And so in the last year, I just invited people on my website to share their stories, uh, both positive and negative. One of the things that that disproved was that idea, because I was hearing from people who were saying, nobody made me read this book. I picked it up and I want, you know, I embraced it myself. And here are some negative consequences to that. You mentioned the the documentary. Yeah, we're in the process of doing a Kickstarter campaign and trying to raise the funds to to shoot this documentary. And that really is sort of the, is an attempt to capture the process that I'm in the midst of, of both interacting with readers and their stories, and then interacting with writers and professors and Christian thinkers who have reshaped some of my thinking as I've gone back, you know, 20 years later and said, okay, what was going on at that time? Why did I write the things I wrote? And then what's the actual result been in the lives of people. And, you know, one of the things that um, they pointed out that I think has been really helpful for me to understand is that in trying to avoid 
the problem of short-term romantic relationships that don't lead to commitment. People waited until they were really ready for commitment, and they ended up putting a pressure on that relationship by making it so serious and so focused and so intentional that it made it hard to, to be uh, objective about the person and also just to get to know different kinds of people so that they can make a wise decision about marriage and, and their relationships. And so I think that's been an un- unintended consequence of uh, the call to avoid problems of, of dating. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I'm curious about what your thinking is in terms of what an author needs to take credit or responsibility for, because a lot of these stories are really uh, complicated. Um, And, you know, in some of them, your book is central and some your book is just kind of part of the story. Uh, Yeah, or of the larger subculture. Of the larger subculture. Yeah, right. True love weights and charity rings and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I've heard people credit this book from everything from like the success of their marriage, the failure of their marriage, you know, for their self-image, for the way they understand God looks at them, for being, you know, unmarried at 40, you know, for, you know, creating certain cultures uh, and how they understand modesty and purity. And how do we steward ideas well, even when they, they may run away from us? How do we look at what we've put out into the world and say, Yes, uh, that's something that I need to take ownership for, even though it's it's messy. Well, that is exactly the thing that I am grappling with and getting so many different types of advice and opinion about that. Part of the reason that I'm I'm going back and revisiting this is not because I'm I'm trying to um, insert myself back into this whole thing as an author, even or those any of those things. I think part of it is because I've seen how much pain and disillusionment can come from the way we try to apply ideas and the cultures that we create around Christian practices and things like that. And I want to try to force a conversation, encourage a conversation, and and the asking of the very question that you're asking, Ted, honestly, to say, what does it look like for all of us to move towards other people in love? What does it look like for us to, to take personal responsibility where we can? And I think that there are extremes on all sides. I mean, I recognize that I cannot take responsibility either for all the good or all the bad that's taken place in in any one person's life. And and in times I've, you know, I've been crushed by the responsibility of both of those things. And I've, I have to just for my own sanity, step back and say, you know, it's not all about my book or my ideas. There's, there's complexity to people's family lives, to their own emotional states and personalities and all those types of things. But I think the reason that I have been motivated to try to come back 
and have this conversation and own problems in my own book is because I don't think that there's enough acknowledged in the church about how much influence and power Christian leaders and Christian writers have in the lives of people. I've had a a number of people say to me, well, you shouldn't even be doing this because, you know, nobody made anybody read your book. Nobody forced them to. They made their own decisions. They lived their own life. And, And to a certain extent, that's true. But what people don't understand if they've not been in a religious environment is that there is a tremendous amount of pressure when your parents, who you know, you're called to honor, give you a book and say, you should do this, or your pastor, who you know, speaks God's word to you, says, this is what you should do, or just your faith community has an idea of this is the right way to do things. It's so hard to, in a discerning way, sort through that and say, well, you know what? Actually, the word of God gives us freedom in these areas, We make decisions about these topics, and those might be wise ideas, but they're not biblical commandments. And so I'm going to live my life in a different way that actually contradicts my faith community. Uh, But I believe I'm doing this with a clear conscience in a way that honors God. It takes a tremendous amount of inner strength and resolve to do that and to push back against that. And so when you try to um, put the ideas of like a book like I Kiss Dating Goodbye into practice, and you think that you're you're doing God's will and you're following God's plan and then things don't turn out the way you hope that can be incredibly disillusioning and and um painful and it can cause you to feel like God himself has let you down and so part of my motivation in wanting to come back and say you know what here are things that that I can see it you know not all of it but here's what I can see about what I got wrong in my book I hope that it could somehow be used to help people say you know what it wasn't God that let me down I can still hold, I can still pursue him and know him and and put faith in him but yes human systems human authors christian movements those things will let me down. Those things will be imperfect. And and I, so I hope that's part of the, the conversation that, that takes place. Josh, are you concerned that you think many Christian authors and speakers aren't necessarily considering, you know, I guess they have to be kind of like stewards of ideas and then actions that these ideas inspire? Especially with a book like mine that is advocating a specific practice in such a particular way, I think we have to be really careful that we're not adding to God's word in a way that, you know, I made qualifications in the book. I said things like, I don't think dating is sinful. And, you know, I'm not kissing my future wife until I'm married, but that's just me. That's not for everyone. You say those types of things, but the force of argument can make a person feel like, boy, if I really want to be serious for God, I have to do this too. That's part of the thing I think a lot of us need to to think about more closely, we are drawn to new ideas. We're drawn to practice. We're drawn to things being very black and white and specific. And so, and we're also drawn to things being radical and challenging. And so it's hard to, it's hard to argue with a high standard. It, it, nobody really likes to be the person that says, Hey, can we just kind of chill out a little bit and not be so serious? Or, you know, just, that doesn't sound spiritual. I think that we have to recognize evangelicalism in particular. I'm not, I don't even know if this is accurate seems to be uh, susceptible to movements and bandwagons and kind of like fervor and excitement that in the long term doesn't necessarily lead to mature, balanced, faithful disciples of Jesus. I think there's like this inverse relationship between complexity and praxis. I'm going to try to 
unpack this if I can. But like the more that you assume that the world is a very complex place, the harder it becomes to give really specific instructions to a general audience, quote unquote, general audience, right? Yeah. Where the more that we think that we can assume where people are coming from and the baseline of what they believe is true, what their family situation or income or whatever may make possible to them, the easier it is sometimes to try to be like, well, this is what you actually should do because we think we know all the variables and factors that go into it. I think that is such a huge point. And and the truth is complex statements about situations are not the thing that get the clicks on, you know, social media. They're not the things that fit into, you know, a, a, a statement on Twitter. They're not the, the articles that are probably going to be passed along that you guys write at CT. And they're certainly not the books that sell. The books that sell are the books that uh, either use fear to scare people, or they're the books that give simple promises. You do this and you will have this amazing life. You know, you take these these steps and things will work out for you in this way. And so that's part of what I, I realized happened in Ike Stating by in, in certain ways, it was like the equivalent of, you know, relational health and wealth. It was basically saying, you know what, if you want God's best and you just follow him and do these certain things, you'll experience God's best, which, you know, translated in people's minds to, I will get married, I'll have an amazing sex life, you know, everything will work out. And the, 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 the reality, the complexity is God doesn't promise us those things. He doesn't promise all of us marriage. He doesn't promise us that our sexual desires always line up with what um, his word allows. He doesn't promise us that if we get married, we'll have a great sex life. He doesn't promise us that our spouse will live or that our marriage will work out or any of those things. And so the more specific and kind of simple things are, the more people invest hope and a sense of this will pay off. And then the more pain there is when they, they figure out that that actually is not the case. I'm curious about how your uh, seminary work is informing your kind of exploration of rethinking this major best-selling book. Uh, are there doctrines or authors or uh, ideas that are helping you kind of rethinking? It's more the cumulative effect of the the study, um, I think it's coming to a seminary graduate school of theology where a number of different streams of Christianity are coming together. Uh, I was in a pretty you know kind of narrow, very focused part of the body of Christ, uh, which I'm grateful for the the time that I had there. But I think it's it's uh, enlightening and illuminating when you see oh here are, here are these different ways that that the same core Orthodox Christian faith can be expressed. And this isn't the only way to think about it. And actually, the world is a little, you know, more complex than I thought it was. And even coming to Canada, you know, I think has been has helped me to see uh, different ways that Americans think that I didn't even realize. So that international flavor here, being alongside students from Asia and Africa and other parts of the world, has been really helpful. And I think also just studying more church history has given me a, a greater sense of, you know, boy, I mean, every generation wants to think that it has arrived, that it is the pinnacle. But the reality is that every generation of the church is just messing up in different ways. It has certain strengths. It has certain weaknesses. It has major blind spots. And we all just need 
God's grace. Josh, I'm wondering if you could just speak to some of the specific assumptions that you had about the ideas that you were writing about in I Kiss Dating Goodbye and also about the people that were reading it um, at the time that you published the book. I was writing it to a, a narrow audience in, in certain ways. I think I was making assumptions about them being in Christian families, in Christian community, um, having support from others um, in different ways to have these kinds of relationships. Um, I wasn't really thinking in terms of adults that were, you know, not living at home, <laughs> not, not, uh, not, you know, being supported in different ways by their parents and, and other things. And so I, I, again, I just hadn't, I, I wasn't able to process all the complexity of, of the different kinds of circumstances people would find themselves in. And also, I think I, I didn't recognize the complexity of different personalities and relational strengths. Like I'm a very social extroverted type of person. I don't have, I never had a problem in talking to girls. And so I think it was easy for me based on my experience to think, you know, yeah, you know, just don't date, but you can have friendships and, you know, all these things will happen great. And, you know, as I've interacted with people, I realized, wow, you know, for many people, they use my book to hide from relationships when actually they should have been pushing themselves out there to, you know, interact with, with the opposite sex more and kind of get outside of their comfort zone. And, um, and that would have been healthy for them. So would you recommend your book today? Yeah, I would, I would with, with many cautions. Um, and that's part of the reason I'm, I'm doing these kinds of interviews and I plan to release kind of a, an updated statement, you know, that I, I put out online to say, here's what I have recognized as helpful and unhelpful. And I don't see all this perfectly, but consider these things and watch for these things. And then, you know, read some of these stories of ways in which these ideas have help some people, but in other ways hindered people. And so I, I would, um, I guess the answer is <laughs> I'm less prone to recommend any book with sort of a blanket, you know what, this is so awesome. This is so great. And just do this and you'll be, you'll be good. I would not really do that for anything at this point besides the the Bible. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I have a, I have a shelf here at the office from about, I don't know, a third to a half of that shelf is all different editions of uh, Ron Sider's Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, because in each of these editions, uh, Ron would change his mind on a number of things and he would put out a new edition saying, you know, my last edition, I was, you know, pretty pretty critical of this, but I've read some more research, and now I think this is a good way to address poverty or to uh, encourage uh, justice. Um, and it's just interesting uh, to look at each of those editions uh, going through and that kind of um, the ways in which he has rethought this book that obviously, you know, he is kind of synonymous with in our movement, and that has affected so many people. But yet, so many people are affected by so many different editions that the people who read it in the seventies <laughs> read a very different book than the people who read it in the nineties. You know, so anyway, same title, which I admire a lot more than uh, you know. Uh, there are other people who they write the same book over and over and over again with no changes, and they just put a different title on it. So that's uh, it's, it's nice when people rethink their <laughs> rethink their. That's really arguments. inspiring. I hadn't I hadn't heard about uh, that example, but that's actually very encouraging. Any other things that we forgot to ask you about, Josh? The documentary that we're doing is we want to give the film away. So we decided to do a Kickstarter campaign to invite people to help us fund this so that we could make the, the film available for free. It's not a, a for-profit endeavor uh, at all. But, you know, the challenge that we've run into is that all the people out there who love my book don't want me to self 
you know, critique it. <laughs> um, and then all the people, all the people who hate the book are, are like, we don't trust you to actually, you know, really honestly evaluate and apologize for things. So I really, at this point, I don't, I don't know that we're going to um, get the funding for the the project, but but um, whether or not that happens, we'll find a way to to share these ideas with people. I think what it says, though, is just to me, it's a little bit sad that we're so polarized and we only want to hear people say the things that we already think. And so I guess one thing that I'm hoping, the tribe that I hope will increase, are those people that say, you know what? I might not agree with you on everything, but I think it's healthy when Christians and when churches are willing to just acknowledge we're not going to get everything right. Uh, we're going to teach and we're going to encourage practices that at times we're going to look back on and say, boy, you know what? That wasn't completely healthy or th- that led to some bad results. And if we're not, if nobody is willing to step forward and say, let's be honest about that and let's not just brush that under the rug and move on and write another you know, book and come up with a different movement, but let's just, let's step back and process that. Let's acknowledge that we all need grace, leaders and followers and men and women and, you know, everybody, we all need, we all need God's mercy. And let's, let's look at clearly those places where our ideas didn't, didn't really work out that well. I think that that's going to make for healthier, uh, healthier churches. I think it's going to make for more discerning Christians. Um, I think it's going to help people avoid the mistake of putting their hope and their faith in people or in books or in ideas instead of putting that hope and faith in the person and the work of Jesus. And, and that's part of what my, my, my prayer is that this kind of process of reevaluation that I'm doing would contribute toward. Awesome. So anyone who has more questions or commentary or feedback or whatever, again, you can give all of that to us via our social media channels. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT podcasts. We are also on Twitter at twitter.com slash CT podcasts or at CT podcasts, however you want to look for us. All right. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone here is going to share something that is bringing them joy this week and where they can be found online. Joshua, you want to go ahead? Um, you know what? I have been able to hang out with my two oldest kids. Um, my wife and my youngest daughter are taking a trip to visit family on the East Coast. And so the chance to just spend time with my, my kids, my 17-year-old and my 15-year-old, has really given me life and encouraged me. So I've really loved that. Did you guys go on any adventures? Oh boy, we've been doing all kinds of stuff. My my daughter is um my daughter is experimenting with with being a vegan. And so I've been taking her to these restaurants that I never would have set foot in uh, in the past and like eating um, vegan versions of things that I, I never imagined. But so that's been that's been kind of fun. And, and Vancouver is a beautiful place to go hiking and go to the beach and, and so on. So that's been good. Do you have like vegan bacon? <laughs> I've never I didn't even know there was vegan. Bacon. I have no I'm idea if there is. Yeah, it, it's not, not. Yeah, it's not awesome. I, is that right? Yeah. I, yes, my son also. He, well, he's vegetarian. He's not the full vegan, but okay. we are trying all those. You know, Trader Joe's is good, but man, living in there's worse places to live than Vancouver if you're going to try to do the vegan thing. That, that that's that, true. That, that's a nice. Place Although to there's be. no Trader Joe's up here, it's a right. sad. It's a sad, uh, sad you reality. And now there's no Pirate Joe's either. So, oof. oh my gosh, you know about Pirate Joe's? Oh, I'm yeah. so impressed. Yeah, I'm they so shut them down like in the past two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, sad. it's really sad. Are you on Twitter? <laughs> 
I am on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at Harris Josh, and uh, we also have a website for the um, the documentary, which is I Survived IKDG.com. So I Survived I Kiss Dating Goodbye is the name of the the documentary, and uh, people can also search for that on Facebook and learn more about it. Awesome, Ted. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll skip activities this week and talk about two apps, uh, website things that I have that are bringing me great joy. One is explore.org, which is just awesome webcams, you know, of uh, that don't move, but it's July, and so the that means the uh, the Alaskan bear cam is active. So you, you know, the famous kind of uh, bears at the waterfall eating salmon. You can go watch a live stream of that, and it's uh, extremely relaxing and enjoyable. And so I. I love that. That's I don't watch TV, but man, I I do more than my share of screen time with uh, with these these animal webcams that are online. Uh, the other thing is. Um I turned uh, 43 recently, and as I get older, it is harder and harder to memorize scripture. So I was looking for a good tool for doing that better because it was just getting harder. Yeah, let me know. What and I this? finally found a decent one uh, called Scripture Typer. And what's in- nice about it is it doesn't just work in helping me memorize scripture, but it is very game-like. And so I actually do find myself just pulling it out to kind of uh, scratch my, I want to, you know, play a game right now on my phone uh, itch, and, and I, I can do that instead. So it's uh, it's working. Called Scripture Typer. I like it. Ted, maybe you're going to be tweeting about those someday, so where would people find you on Twitter? Oh, yes, that's true. At Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E. My precious moment is that I went to the Chicago History Museum yesterday for free because it's free if you're an Illinois state resident, I guess, on this particular Tuesday. And sometimes I think that Chicago is like a really insecure city and consistently compares itself to New York, but I am lucky to feel really happy to say that I did not see any references to New York in the museum. And it was cool learning about the places where Lincoln stayed in Chicago. Like in my brain, I pretty much only associate Lincoln with D.C. because of the Lincoln Memorial and the theater there. Um, And so it was just like, what? Wow. Like Abraham Lincoln stayed in these buildings that are like still here and I could walk to in a mile away from here. Morgan, he is on our license plates. He is everywhere. But I've never been to Springfield. State. Okay. It's, it's the Chicago Land connect- of Lincoln. It's the, the Chicago, the Chicago connect- connection. So it's not, not just that you're in Illinois. It's that Chicago. Yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is easy as a Chicago person to think of uh, Lincoln as kind of a, a downstate guy. Yeah. He's either downstate or he's D.C. So I was like, oh my gosh. No, this is history right here. Like during the debates, the debates that he did with Stephen Douglas were like in There's Chicago- one not far from our offices here. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, whatever. I'm just like, I love American history and I love it when I'm in places that remind me of that. So it was really cool. Nice. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to the show. Thank you everyone for subscribing to the show and subscribing to our magazine. Again, we're at orderct.com slash quick to listen if you want to become a subscriber. Um, you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. But Apple Podcasts is where we ask for you to leave your reviews and let us know what you think. That is super helpful. So thank you for everyone who does that. Thank you so much to our producers, Richard Clark and Cray Allred. We will see you all next week. And fear not, Mark will return. Bye. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism. 
and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.